0: Hello, this is Ken Stusen. I'm a partner at Brown Advisory. Welcome again to the NOW podcast. NOW stands for navigating our world. Through these discussions, we try to better understand the world around us to navigate some of the most pressing questions that are shaping our lives, our culture, and our investment challenges. As we look to the future, whether we agree or disagree with each other, the one thing we know for sure is that none of us can figure this out on our own. At Brown Advisory, we are focused on raising the future, and we hope these now conversations will help us do just that.
1: Clean energy is in a race against climate change, and despite many headwinds over the years, we've seen a massive acceleration in the global energy transition from fossil fuels to renewables. The transition to a lower-carbon economy will be both very long-term and extremely complex. Meanwhile, the war in Ukraine, the intensified focus on energy security, the fires, floods, and extreme temperatures that demonstrate the effects of climate change, these all underscore the need to escalate the transition. I'm Erica Pagel. I'm the Chief Investment Officer for Sustainable Investing and a Portfolio Manager at Brown Advisory. As we think about positioning client portfolios to capitalize on energy transition, we are both encouraged by technological innovation and the significant investment in climate action that will result from the Inflation Reduction Act. At the same time, we must take into account second and third order risks, such as supply chains, the environmental and social impacts of mining for the minerals that are key components of renewables, and the water-intensive processes of many alternative energy sources. There are no easy solutions. This is why I wanted to delve into the energy transition with experts who represent various perspectives. In this three-part series, I will talk with thought leaders who can help us understand how we got to where we are today, the role of traditional energy companies, and the promise of new technologies and innovation to create a path toward a low-carbon future. I can kick off whenever whenever you're ready to lay the foundation i invited atul Arya on the podcast yeah i think i'm i'm all good thank you for inviting me atul is one of the foremost thinkers in the energy industry someone who has run businesses that span both oil and gas as well as solar today atul is senior vice president and chief energy strategist for s p global where he analyzes the entire energy value chain as you'll hear Atul highlights the challenges of reaching net zero by 2050, as outlined in the Paris Agreement. I wanted to start by asking Atul for his view on the current state of the industry and where we are in terms of a global energy transition.
2: So, Erica, I think the way we think about transformation or transition is that historically in the energy world, there have been at least three transitions. The first one was from biomass, which was mostly wood, to coal, the use of coal. Then it was from coal to oil, and oil started in the eighteen hundred, late 1800s here in the US. And then from oil to gas, uh, so those have been the three energy-related transitions. There is another way to look at transitions, which is the use of fire, then agriculture, and then industrial revolution. One thing which has been common in all of this transition is that we have gone from something which was less functional to higher functionality. You know, coal had higher energy density than wood did, and same with oil, and also at a generally at a lower cost. So now we are in this transition to go from an energy system which is hydrocarbon based to a system which will emit very little greenhouse gases, very little CO2 and other greenhouse methane and so on. So really at the so-called net zero world, and we are in the early days of it. Just to give you one piece of data, today the overall oil, gas, coal, fossil fuel mix is around 80%, depending on how you count, 80% of global energy mix. It was 83% 30 years back. So we've gone from 83% to 80%. Now, of course, the total amount consumed has gone up a lot, more than 50% up in that same period. Now we want to go in the next 30 years from that 80% to near zero, net zero. That's a massive transformation of the system. So we have just not even begun. I would say we are in chapter one, page one of the book.
1: What does energy transition mean to you?
2: I think energy transition in this current context of the way it is being used, is really transitioning to a carbon-free energy system. Right now, carbon or hydrocarbons are in into everything we do, not just our transportation, our, our power source, and so on, but also the clothes we wear, the roads we drive on, the manufacturing of steel, fertilizer, aluminum, you name it. Uh, energy and hydrocarbon energy is the fundamental to everything, heat, light, mobility, and we want to change that. So the transition will be a completely redesign of the system, not just in the US or in OECD, but globally. So a redesign
1: of the system or a massive change, from your perspective, is energy transition then inflationary or is it actually disinflationary?
2: It's a great question and a piece, you know, a huge debate happening as we speak because the energy prices are so high. So many are saying, Look, this is because of energy transition that the energy prices have gone up. I would say it's it's going to be bumpy, which means both inflationary and just inflationary, you know, there is no kind of a global czar for energy transition. When she or he says, okay, that's the way everybody is going to march and we all follow that. So it's going to mean there'll be bumps in the road. And that's what we're seeing today is a highly inflationary energy regime. Down the road, you would expect that if we are relying on natural sources, solar and wind, that the price element, the price of commodity, that will go away. So hopefully that will mean this inflationary. So the journey is likely to be inflationary. The last thing I would say is that the building of the system itself could be pretty inflationary because you're gonna require massive growth in demand for solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, you name it. And the sourcing of these and the minerals we will need could be potentially highly inflationary because of the way these are distributed today.
1: I'd love to shift gears a little bit now to Ukraine. Obviously, the war in Ukraine has had a massive impact in terms of the humanitarian cost, but also from an energy perspective. We often use supply and demand as a synonym for energy. Why is this so important, and how is Ukraine impacting the balance?
2: Yeah, so as you said, the, the war in Ukraine has a massive humanitarian impact, and we all hope that the conflict will end soon. Why it has had such a big impact is because of the role of Russia as an energy superpower. You know, since the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, Russia has been completely integrated into the global energy system and is a major supplier of oil, gas, coal, actually uranium, many other minerals around the world, not just to Europe. And because of the sanctions on Russia because of the war, there is a massive disruption in the global energy system, which is in a way is a very well-oiled machine, pardon my pun there. So this machine now has friction and challenges and that's why we are seeing Particularly for Europe, which is Europe has been a major receiver of energy, oil and gas, and coal, actually, from Russia.
1: Yeah, the war has had an outsized impact on Europe. Do you think that there is a way out of this impending energy crisis in Europe right
2: now? I'm not in the short term, I would say not this year, not next year, because the supply chains of energy take a long time to re-establish. This is a physical business where you have to uh, put steel in the ground, and they are doing some of that, building new, for example, LNG, and terminals to get LNG and gas from uh, places outside of Russia. So we could potentially see more disruption and the higher prices this fall. Uh, But what I see, what I find very interesting is that the Europeans in particular, we should keep an eye on what happens in Germany because that's the industrial powerhouse, the largest consumer of energy. And my feeling is that they are going to focus on transitioning as fast as they can, but it cannot happen this year or next year. You mentioned that there
1: will likely be long-term impacts from the war. Do you think that it will speed up or slow down the energy transition?
2: For Europe, if you stay on that for a minute, Erica, I think Europeans are determined to speed it up because they have this new plan which they approved a couple of months back, called the Repower EU. So they are determined to speed up transition. Again, there will be supply chain issues, their hardware uh, availability of solar panels and batteries and so on. So Europe will be different. Uh, I think in other places, it is likely to not have a very significant impact. The U.S. is in a different place because of the way the, both the geography and the sourcing of energy within the U.S., but Europe could potentially speed up its transition.
1: Oftentimes, we talk a lot about the geopolitics of energy. How has the war shifted how we look at energy today, or maybe a move towards energy security and energy independence?
2: One thing I've learned in my time in the industry is that geopolitics and energy are kind of deeply intertwined, I think we're going to see some significant impacts. I will mention maybe two. One is that Russia, from being an energy superpower, may be reduced to an energy power and pivot to East, primarily to China, because China is the largest consumer of energy and will continue to need imported energy for a long time, and Russia will be the biggest provider of that energy. On the other hand, U.S., which has been somewhat away from the European in terms of supply of oil and gas in particular we are seeing a massive shift in gas going from us into europe rather than to asia so us and europe will get closer in terms of energy. More gas will now flow into Europe. And we have, in a way, unlimited supply of gas in the US. And this could potentially be a very big opportunity for gas producers and LNG companies in the US to get closer to Europe. At least for this decade, even though Europe wants to fast track its transition, it's not going to get away from gas, in particular, as a transition fuel. So zooming
1: out beyond Ukraine and Europe, you've said that any path to net zero must travel via Asia and Africa. Can you say more about the roles of China, India, and emerging economies as part of the solution?
2: Yes, that's a really important point, Erica. Here in the U.S. and Europe, we forget that there is a whole world out there which is still growing. In the US and in Europe, we are really not growing the overall demand for energy, so we are having I won't call energy transition, but more around substitution. We took coal out, added more renewables, and now we're going to take oil out of cars and put electricity. But if you go to India and China, China is the number one greenhouse gas emitter. India is the number three, US number two. So if India and China don't reduce their emissions or get on a path to reducing their emissions, there is no such thing as net zero. Net zero has to ultimately be a global net zero. Ultimately, if US and Europe get to net zero, Without India and China, it's sort of a hollow victory.
1: One of the biggest challenges today is balancing the growing global demand for energy, but also moving towards a lower carbon future. How do you think about this challenge?
2: Very difficult in my view, particularly if you think about not just India and China, by the way, but also Africa. And there was a new UN population report which just came out a few weeks back, which talked about how much more population is going to grow in Africa. So we're going to need, they're going to need, as more people come on the planet, they're going to need more energy, more food, housing, roads, you name it. So uh, I think there are a few things we can do. One is that coal is the largest single source of emissions. So how can we deal with this problem called coal? And it's not as simple as saying, let's shut down all the coal power plants, which some in the US and Europe talk about. Because it's not just the power plants, it's the coal mines, the railways, it's all the people. The entire value chain has to be addressed. Now, there is a potential model we can receive because last year in Glasgow, there was an agreement for the West OECD to give South Africa, another large consumer of coal, $8.5 billion to eliminate coal from South Africa's power mix. Just the South Africa itself... produces more than a quarter of total greenhouse gas emissions for all of Africa, if you can imagine that. There is a big opportunity. If South Africa can do that grand bargain to reduce coal and substitute with gas and also renewables, uh, energy efficiency, I think there is a path there. So I think I would say one is that. Second is we need to put a lot more money into these countries. There was a commitment way back in Paris, COP, to provide $100 billion per year to developing countries, it's not nowhere near that. And so that commitment needs to be met. That should really be a floor and not a ceiling. The number has to go higher higher than that. And then finally, really rapid technology transfer. We need to get technologies which are being developed primarily in the US and Europe as fast as possible into the developing world. So they can leapfrog, they can go faster and reduce the carbon intensity of their energy, which is what they need to do, ultimately. They are, reducing their energy demand is going to be much more difficult than reducing the carbon intensity.
1: Let's now shift to the US. How do you think we're doing?
2: Well, I think if we had talked a few weeks back, I would say not so good. But now, <laughs> of course, we have the IRA, Inflation Reduction Act. I think a bit of a, if I can say, a misnomer for the bill. It's really a climate change act. So it's a massive legislation with a lot of money. I see it as an industrial policy more than anything else, and somewhat picking winners, uh, which normally I would say is not a good idea. But in this case, uh, I think there are some technologies which need a big infusion of money, carbon capture, hydrogen being at least two of them, the infrastructure somebody has to invest in the charging. Let's see what happens. Uh, The goal has to be reducing emissions. Emissions haven't come down, so let's see how emissions can come down. And the U.S. could be a leader in that.
1: Let's now spend some time talking about traditional energy. You spent a good chunk of your career in different leadership roles at BP. What do you think is the role of traditional energy companies in driving the energy
2: transition? The international oil and gas companies, they are a very important player in this, in in my view. Primarily because, Erica, the companies know how to build stuff. So energy, another thing I have to remind my colleagues is that we are in a hardware business, not a software business. (laughs) This is all real stuff, something you can touch and feel. And there is no such thing as a five-minute version change where you turn on your phone, the new version comes, and then there you go. Here, version change is over decades. So energy companies, the big companies you mentioned, are really good at putting steel in the ground and building stuff. So they're going to have to be part of the solution. This idea that we need to just bypass them, I think is kind of a bit short-sighted.
1: Do you think that traditional energy companies are doing enough? Or are there any examples of companies that are leaders?
2: I think they're doing a lot. And they're also sometimes between a rock and a hard place. Because two years back at the beginning of COVID, say in the beginning of 2020, they kept their promise to increase investments in new energies, renewables, and biofuels, EVs, and so on. But then there was a underinvestment in oil and gas, prices went up, and now everybody say, hey, why are you not investing more in oil and gas? So it's a very fine balance they have to strike. And in my view, they're doing the best they can. They need more policy. And I think this new bill here in the U.S., And also the repower EU, those are two very significant moves for them to have more confidence uh, about the policy commitment, policy stability. Based on our own S&P forecast, we see investment in new energies continue to go up very rapidly over the next uh, few years.
1: I want to ask you a very important question that's not only on the minds of investors, but is on the minds of consumers today. There has been a run-up in the price of oil and gas this year. We've recently seen a retreat in prices within the U.S. What is your outlook for oil and gas and fuel prices in the near term?
2: Yeah, so if you're talking about the U.S. specifically, the oil pricing is a global price. It's linked to the global oil price, what happens with OPEC+. Plus? and other countries. Now we have seen prices come down mainly because the demand softened a bit and there was COVID in China which created a demand drop, travel restrictions and so on. Although we feel that the rest of this year is going to be bumpy because Europe is committed to stopping flow of Russian oil in December. Some of the seaborne oil from Russia will stop and that will be a pretty significant disruption. So that could create a price increase, although the US is now back up on its production after a decline due to COVID. So I think we're in for a high oil price regime for a while, perhaps into the next year, but we see prices, you know, declining maybe in the second half of next year, subject to many other factors. What happens with demand? Do we have another wave of COVID? And the Iranian nuclear deal, if that was agreed, then Iran can bring much more oil faster into the market. Gas is somewhat different. But just to give you a flavor of the difference, US gas price around $9 per mm BTU. In Europe, This week, the prices were at 80 plus dollars. So we are in a completely different ballpark. I think we're going to see higher gas, natural gas prices in the US for a while because there is call on more LNG export, but we have immense resource base. So again, it's a matter of time, how quickly some of that gas production can come up and actually oil production also brings in more associated gas. So those two will help with the pricing.
1: The story is very different if you look at the UK, where caps on annual energy prices are set to rise significantly this fall and even next year. Today, there are conflicting interests. You have lowering energy costs for consumers, but we're also facing climate change. How do you make sense of this, and how do you view the potential for traditional oil companies to either increase production or to facilitate new offshore drilling.
2: Yeah, I think if you look at the U.S. again, the oil, the shale oil, the onshore shale oil production, we see that going up already this year and also going up next year. There has been a lot of discipline on investing. The investors wanted returns rather than just growth. And that was a capital discipline we saw really starting with COVID and still going on. But we will see more growth. Just keep in mind that in terms of oil production, again, global market, in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia is committed to increasing its production. he is in increasing its production. Brazil has some great new finds. The same with Guyana, Canada. So production is going to continue to go up. The challenge is that, as I know from my background in the oil industry, you have to pedal really hard because every year you see about 4-5% five, five decline. About, with 100 million barrels a day base, you see a 5 million barrel a day decline every year. So you have to make up for that, and then add some more, two to three million barrels at least a day day per year. We're looking at eight million barrels per day increase. So it's gonna take some time, that's the challenge. The traditional oil companies, particularly the US, those in the US, and also the national oil companies, some I mentioned, are all committed to remaining in the business. I think some of the European companies we will see, they have committed to declining their oil and gas production, which they will do over a long time, not immediately. Do you think this is a step backward for energy transition? I don't think so. I think this is an evolution, not a revolution. I think if you're really smart and really lucky, we may get a fast evolution. But, uh, you know, the expectations are just too high and unrealistic that... Or oh, we wake up tomorrow morning and everything will be renewables and, and so on. By the way, the other thing people don't seem to understand at times is that, see, electricity is only one part of the energy equation. We can use electricity for a lot of things and it's great. So let's electrify as much as we can. We can electrify our houses, maybe use less gas, transportation, light due to transport. But there are certain things we will not be able to electrify. Making steel, cement, fertilizer industrial processes, those are all going to need natural gas, we need heat there and not electricity. When I was growing up in India, my father used to tell me, don't turn on that heater, coil heater, because you're burning money, because that's real expensive. So we should be thinking about other ways to think how do we transition those, and maybe hydrogen is a way to transition some of those heavy duty industries. So that's why I think we just sometimes have very unrealistic expectations that if it's all wind and solar, we are done. Not really. We are only kind of not even halfway done. Do
1: we have the technologies today that we need? What do we have? And what do you think may be missing?
2: Yeah, you know, this is another interesting point of debate. You may have seen and your listeners will know. A couple of years back, there was this report From IEA, which said for a 50% reduction of our future emissions, we don't have the technologies. And I think that was somewhat misconstrued because we do know we have a lot of great technologies. And I'll give you just a couple of examples. Hydrogen, which is very hot at present, very important. We know how to make hydrogen. We know how to transport it. But it's very expensive. So do we have the technology? Yeah, but do we have it, you know... Cost competitive? Commercial? No. So we need to scale these technologies and we need to get the cost down. Another one which I think is hugely important is storage. Not the storage the batteries for our cars EVs, but long duration storage which can store electricity for a very long time. 8 hours plus at a large scale. Yeah, we know how to do that, but it's very expensive. So we need to figure out how to get the cost down, how to scale it up. There are some technologies which are exciting, but may not be there for a long time, nuclear fusion. So that may be a technology which doesn't come into play till 2040 or beyond, but there are many other technologies where we know what they do. We just need to scale them and make them commercial.
1: Maybe drilling into that a little bit more, are there any technologies right now that are at cost parity?
2: Oh, there are many, you know, solar and wind, obviously. The thing is interesting, I used to work in the solar business for a while. It's a very exciting business, and for your audience, uh, great, great business opportunities in different parts of solar business. I think we're going to see the EV battery cost. We have already seen a huge decline in it. We're gonna see much more decline in the electric vehicle cost. Another one which is not as big, but exciting to me is geothermal. A lot of geothermal resource is clean. By the way, it's clean and continuous energy. So it's not intermittent like solar and wind, but it's a bit niche in the sense that scale is limited. And we're seeing a lot of great innovation. You know the. Petroleum engineers like myself, we never kind of fade away. That's what many of my colleagues are doing now, working on geothermal. And then others like hydrogen, CCS, carbon capture and storage. That's where we need to get the cost down. They are not commercially viable today. Unless there are a lot of incentives like we are seeing in this new bill IRA here in the U.S.
1: So somewhat controversial, how do you think about nuclear and maybe some other sustainable fuels? I know you just talked about hydrogen a a little bit, but there are mixed views specifically on nuclear.
2: Yeah, I think we need nuclear. I know it's it's controversial in places. Just think about it, even in Germany, which has been anti-nuclear for a long time, they have decided to extend the lives of the three Nuclear plants, they were going to shut down at the end of this year. Similarly, in Japan, they're talking about more nuclear, and that place which was going in the other direction. We're going to need more nuclear, and there are new technologies. By the way, when we think about nuclear, people think, oh wow, massive plant, cost overruns, takes a decade to come on. That's been the case, so to be fair. But there are new technologies, particularly the SMR technology, modular, which could be much smaller, could be built, you know, kind of design one and build many will be the concept. So I think we may see some of that in the coming years, and that will be very important. Interestingly, there are countries outside of OECD, like UAE is a most recent example, China, of course, which are still thinking nuclear has a future.
1: And what do you believe is the role of government compared to private investments in developing technologies?
2: I think government is very good at doing kind of fundamental research. The the example I tend to use more recently is the mRNA research, which led to all the vaccines for COVID. mRNA has been around for a long time, but there was a lot of research done in universities and national labs, which led to the development of the COVID vaccines. So if you think about energy context, hydrogen, CCS, These technologies, sort of fundamental research, labs and governments can fund it through universities. A lot of innovation can happen there. We do need some scale-up money. And in the case of the U.S., the Loan Program Office here in the U.S. with the Department of Energy is a great seed, providing seed money for scale-up. People probably don't know this, but LPO, Loan Program Office, helped Tesla when it was about to go under and look at where Tesla is. So if we can get a few more of these test laws for carbon capture and hydrogen to government funding, I think that would be good for everybody.
1: Let's now take a step or a leap into the future. What do you think the energy mix will look like in five or 10 years from today?
2: <laughs> That's a billion dollar question. I think, Erica, my feeling is it's going to change slowly. One other thing I've learned is that normally, as a human beings, we are quite optimistic on the short term, but not as optimistic for the long term. Everything focuses over the next two years, and then then we ignore that. Overestimate the change that will happen short term. So there is no such thing as end of history in the world of energy. I'm sorry to say. Who thought there will be a Fukushima accident? Who thought there will be a Russia, Ukraine? Or on the plus side, solar PV revolution, or shale oil, shale gas. So I think we're going to see surprises as we go forward. I will look at EV signposts. Can we get EV sales, new car sales to be, say, over 25 to 40% of new car sales to be EVs? Any country which can do that, not Norway or smaller ones, but U.S. or Germany or Japan. And then we're talking. Can we generate really long-duration storage in the next decade? California is is leading some of that here in the U.S., Right now, we store 40 million tons of CO2 via CCS globally. And how quickly can we get to a gigaton? That's 25 times. If we can get it to buy end of this decade, that would be huge progress.
1: I love that you just said that as a society, we tend to be optimistic in the short term and not as optimistic in the long term. And you brought up electric vehicles. And I know so many people are waiting in long lists and long lines to receive an electric vehicle. And a lot of that has to do with supply chain issues. And do you see supply chain issues easing overall for electrification? And how is that also impacting the energy industry?
2: There will be some supply chain issues. So my colleague, one of your previous podcast guests, Dr. Yergin, Daniel Yergin, just co-chaired a study on the role of copper and which is critical for everything from transmission lines to evs to solar and wind and so on and we haven't opened a copper mine in the us in decades so that is just one small example so we're going to have some supply chain hiccups one thing i am pretty optimistic about is could we find new one thing could we reuse and recycle a lot more recycle industry is out of necessity and i have a good friend dr andrew McKinsey, who is the chairman of shell now he always reminds me when there is a need there is a solution and there might be a solution here if you need then perhaps we will find something to recycle but it's not going to be it's not going to be straightforward the other issue we're going to face erica is with this new bill if there is a lot of domestic content requirements in the us the ira that's going to create challenges because it's not that straightforward to build a new battery factory. We just, I just read that there's one of the Chinese companies which was thinking about building one is now rethinking because of the geopolitical tensions, building a factory in the U.S. That will again come back and play into how quickly we can transition.
1: In thinking about solutions, what role do you believe traditional oil and gas will play going forward? And do you think that globally we can get to net zero?
2: I think we were even in say 2050. Let's use that as a marker. 30 years away, we will use oil and gas. So if people think oil and gas is completely going to be eliminated from the global energy system, I seriously doubt it. Can we get to real net zero by 2050? I think very challenging in my view. Very challenging. I would say if we have a billion dollars to spend, your your listeners spend a lot of it in Asia and Africa, you'll get a lot more if you're interested in reducing emissions. You'll get a lot more value there than you will in in U.S. and Europe. So that's the balance the world has to drive. Not completely ignore West, but think more. Go East, that's what I would say.
1: Maybe drilling a little bit into your optimism for the future, what do you see as the biggest opportunities?
2: Oh, there is I mean, there are tons and tons of opportunities. The, the technology, as I joke with my colleagues, comes to rescue. And it will come to rescue over time, not tomorrow. <laughs> Don't count on it tomorrow. I think By the way, the one thing we haven't really touched on in any way, Erica, is energy efficiency. And we in the U.S., are not the most efficient users of energy. So that will be, I see, as a very big opportunity reduce the energy demand. One other thing I should just mention, not an opportunity, but something we need to keep an eye on, is the change, the impact of climate change itself on energy infrastructure, on energy demand. We're seeing that right now as we speak with the heat waves here in the US and in Europe, Big increase in the demand for energy. And by the way, when there is a heat wave, it also reduces efficiency of power generation. So that has a counter effect. Nuclear power, you need a lot of cooling. So we need to be thinking about how does climate change impact the global energy system.
1: My last question is, what are you most hopeful and most worried about?
2: I will start with the worried and talk about the hopeful. One of the things we have not paid enough attention to is the is adaptation. Climate change is happening, it's here. And I notice now every day in the evening news I watch, there is at least one climate-related story. Just yesterday here, as we're recording this, there was a big storm in the Southwest, in Texas and they said one in 1,000 year rain storm. So my biggest worry is we need to be thinking about adaptation. A lot of development in the coastal areas all over the world. So that's my big worry. I think in terms of hopeful, I think we are resilient, innovative. I firmly believe in the power of technology to to solve problems. You know, look at what what has happened with the COVID vaccines. Nobody thought that could ever be done. I'm sure we will figure out uh, how to deal transition. Not straight, not a straight line, <laughs> uh, but we'll get there. We know the destination.
1: Atul, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your perspectives.
2: Erica, thank you very much for inviting me to, to this podcast. I hope your listeners will find this time well spent, and I look forward to continuing the conversation.
0: Thank you for joining us as we continue this effort to seek out insights that help us understand our rapidly evolving world. If you enjoyed listening, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. In our next episode, Erica will continue to explore the transition to a low-carbon economy. She'll be speaking with Allison Book, the Chief Sustainability Officer at Baker Hughes, an energy services company with a history of serving the legacy energy sector, which is now innovating to become a solution provider to the new energy economy. We hope you'll join us. Until then, be well and stay safe.